0: stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you. That civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is Patrick, and I'm here with...
1: Dan, hey everyone.
0: And today we are so excited to be able to talk to you about the conclusion of the first arc of the Blade Runner 2019 comics, which uh, we hope you've been reading. Uh, If you haven't, then do not listen to this because we're going to be spoiling quite a lot of stuff. And the storyline of this, I'm happy to say, is very much the kind of storyline that you do not want to have spoiled because a lot of things are unexpected. It takes a lot of twists and turns. And uh, getting to read it has just been such a joy. Dan, what what do you think about it?
1: Yeah, just to give everyone a heads up, the first four issues are out. And like Patrick says, it's kind of a, um, what do you call it, Uh, contained story arc. So they're going to start some other story next. And then uh, the first collection book comes out November 19th. Um, which will be those first four, but obviously bound together and they take up a little less space for those of you who don't have the collection space. So, um, yeah, I've read it a couple of times, you know, some of our preview copies are really good quality. Some of them are a little bit toned down. So I'm looking forward to reading the actual, um, uh, collection here soon. But, um, I think that, you know, from your interview with the creative director that you did, um, six months ago, I think that was. Uh, I'm definitely not disappointed. I think that everything he said about being a Blade Runner nerd and being someone who could carry this torch uh, has really rung true. And you can see it in the work. You can see it in the art. You can see in the richness of the world that they built, which is... Certainly standing on the shoulders of giants. It's obviously very much building off of the world that Ridley Scott and his team created in the 1982 film. And you can see lots of parallels with, you know, the blimp and the police station and a noodle bar and stuff like that. But with lock plenty of new additions and interesting places like, you know, the artificial uh, archipelago in Santa Barbara, and, which is a cool idea. Um, so, yeah, I, I it's cool to get dragged into new characters that are in a familiar world um, and you know you hear about Tyrell here and there so there's there's familiar characters but obviously these are all new characters and I really love that and and it's hard to do I think you know it's like um, I've been talking a lot about Rogue One just because I just got it from my dad and you know such a big example of a really good Star Wars story and that's another good example of something that pulls on familiar themes and characters but with all new cast all new characters and you know it's not easy to do so I, I definitely uh, commend uh, the whole team on what they've pulled together with these comics. The writing is beautiful as well. I mean, I, I literally was writing down some quotes because I was like, god damn, these lines are so good. Um, yeah, really impressed overall.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I want to throw a little bit of a, of a shout out to the physical copies of these two for those of you who have the means or the space for them because uh, usually when a, when a comic book is printed with this really high quality outer cover, it's four ninety nine. That's kind of like a standard price for like a Marvel comic that would be bound like this. And they're only $399 and they're in all these different variants and they're printed like super, super, super high quality. Um, they're really gorgeous display pieces. So I'm like specifically gonna have them out, you know, in my collection area, you know, kind of on the wall for people to look at because they're really, they're really beautiful. Um, and it's neat that the collected edition is gonna come out just days after our event, which is pretty cool. And we'll get to the event, you know, at the end. But uh, you know, while you're in Los Angeles celebrating Blade Runner, you know, find a comic store and pick up a copy of this thing. I totally agree on the quality of the writing. I am just astounded. So, again, you know, for those of you who might need a refresher, these are being written by Michael Green, who was the screenwriter, the principal, well, the co-screenwriter with Hampton Fancher of Blade Runner two thousand forty nine, along with Mike Johnson, who is a comic book writer, who is a frequent collaborator of his. So they're doing that together. So it, it's being written by people who are writing the films, which to me is a really important thing that you just don't see very frequently, and I think that really rubs off on the tone and something else that I'll get to in one second. And also, Andres Guinaldo, the artist, I am just absolutely blown away by his work. I feel like. The density of it and how accurate it feels. I mean, there's some panels that um, I get like really comp like I, I get almost breathless from them. Like, there's one where she's driving low over the city because she doesn't want to get shot down again, right? And uh, and it's just a it's just sort of an overhead shot of a spinner that's only like thirty feet off the ground, so people are kind of ducking out of the way of it. And I'm looking around. I'm like, man, this is this feels like I'm watching a shot in a film, but like it's not because we don't have that film. But it feels so cinematic and there's so much detail in the ways people are moving and what they're interacting with and the storefronts that they're in. Um, And then, of course, we get to see, you know, this Baja environment, too, right, with the sanctuary, which is so unlike anything else we've seen in any Blade Runner film, but is actually kind of like some things we've seen in the novel that it was based on. Um, and it's bright and it still feels like it's part of this future setting. It's just it's amazing the uh the the new stuff that we get to enjoy that fleshes out our appreciation of the world. And that's what I think we wanted. And what I think we heard David Leach saying in that interview that he did with us that you alluded to, Dan, is uh this is supposed to just be a companion piece, much like Rogue One is to the, you know, primary films in the in the franchise. Um this sits in there and it fleshes out our understanding. It's stories that are taking place in that same environment, but it's not replacing anything we know it's not really retconning anything we know it's building on things we know um and one other point of clarity i want to make this is the conclusion of this arc but i i mean it it is i think it's safe to assume that we are still going to be following ash and cleo and other characters that we know to come like this is an ongoing comic series so when it says to be concluded at the end of the fourth issue it's saying that this particular thing where she was hunting for you know isabel and cleo and there was this whole background story with tyrell and alexander selwyn you know, and what their relationship was and this underground railroad kind of a thing. This is the conclusion of that sort of self-contained story. Um, and now I think we're going to see, at least I would assume, something about them going off-world or trying to get off-world or maybe getting off-world. And that's so exciting too, because we have never seen that. Like we don't have any other visuals in Blade Runner that have ever been um, not unearthed. Oh know? man, I don't even know how I feel about that. Like that that's a ballsy move,
1: but you know, maybe a comic book is the appropriate place to explore that because I know we're all kind of squeamish about um film like let's say they made a third film or something if that film went off world we're all like I don't know like that's a whole new set of imagery to bring up and obviously the right people can do it right, but it's still a big risk I think to show off world.
0: Oh yeah. Um
1: even when I see like like someone just put up a fan art piece the other day about it was like a ship being shot uh with a couple of viewers on the ground and then there was a planet behind it and it said something about the Tannhauser gate and I was like, that's a really great piece of fan art. I don't want to see a whole movie like set there. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just like, it, it ruins too much of my own imagination and my own, uh, meanderings about what that might look like. Um, right. So, but I Although
0: think, I would say that I think the way to do it, and this is something that I think Rogue One does really well. Speaking of Rogue One is, uh, you can introduce material that answers some questions as long as that material creates questions that build on the questions you already had. So like if we could, when we see off world, if we do see off world in this particular comic in the months to come, uh, hopefully it's just one slice of what that looks like. It's not like, you know, we're going to see this completely representative notion of right. where everybody who's not on earth is right. right. If we see one particular community and what's going on there and it makes us think more questions about how, who, you know, why are people there? Who's there? Uh, what are the ramifications back home? I, I, there's a way to do it, so I, I oh yeah, you know, I, have I mean, so, I have so much confidence in this, yeah. in this
1: team. I mean, blackout the anime does a scene of combat on Kalanta, and that works on just fine. On Kalanta, yeah, right. But that's also because it's not really showing you anything. It's just a desert, and it's a couple of replicants <laughs> shooting at right. each other. So it lets you imagine everything, even though it's showing you a little bit of off-world. But right, but it does um, stay
0: with you, right? And whenever whenever I see the name of our you know social group, I, I have a memory of that scene because it's stuck with me and it's and I, and it makes me think it makes me imagine like wow what else is happening out there like what what are these other wars that we don't know about what are these other things that have happened you know so that's what that's totally. the way to do it
1: yeah um i was thinking can i take the opportunity to just cuz i just i don't think i'll be able to like pull from my notes organically as we're talking so i just wanted to highlight a few of the writing examples that i thought were really cool or like things sure. that popped yeah, up go for it, yeah. just to kind of like start the conversation but um, I mean, the first scene with uh, Benny, I think is his name, the, the first replicant that like cuts his eyes out and kills himself, which is such an intense scene. But, um, you know, she's talking about, I think it's her own um, monologue, inner monologue where she's saying, I, I didn't know if he'd have the gall. Oh no, she says it to him because he says, I got, my name's Benny and I got plenty of gall. Um, and uh, she says, I think to herself, I didn't think they'd put it in you after he kills himself like that which is such a cool line obviously because it conjures up the whole concept of how replicates are created um there's a canaan corporation that's brought up which they don't say anything about i forget even what the context is but that's a biblical name um so that's interesting feeding the future is uh, Selwyn's company. I think Kanan might be Selwyn's company, and the yeah. motto is Feeding the Future. So he's a very obvious Wallace um, parallel. He's another magnate, or, you know, a big wig that's uh, kind of working on genetic engineering
0: and stuff. And just uh, thinking about, just mm-hmm. a Yeah, yeah, thing, go, yeah. No, so, go ahead and so, jump you know, in when, anytime. Because this takes place, we know when this takes place in 2019, the rise of Neander Wallace doesn't happen for a few years, right? But it's getting close. So somebody would be taking up that mantle if something were to happen to Alexander Selwyn. And I think events in this are making me believe that probably something is going to happen to him because he's, you know, uh, putting himself in a lot of danger. Sure. So to me, it would make a lot of sense for the rise of Wallace to coincide with the fall of this other magnate. And uh, there's a vacuum created by that.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, did you notice when he Selwyn's talking about where, where Cleo, his daughter, was... Uh, Cleo's the daughter right I'm not mixing that up Uh, where she was last and she had gone to Lydia Tyrell's birthday party yeah who do you think Lydia Tyrell is his niece right that's what I know because I was like I don't think he has kids that's his niece that's that's the Rachel model. that's her like that's who they make exactly. Rachel love of which is super yeah cool um, no, I caught a... that too and and yeah, and right.
0: of course it's it's alluded to in one of the alternate covers that has the ghost of Rachel in the background right it's like she's she's present I think in the story yeah like, I know ways that. that are hard to see
1: yeah I was gonna ask about that because I was like that's very it's very abstract because we never run into Rachel at all in the in the uh, comic but we were all curious about that when we saw that very first mm-hmm. famous first cover.
0: although I, I do think Isabel Selwyn's haircut also could have been the one casting that shadow so it could be isabel casting the shadow and there's of course very clear corollaries between isabel selwyn and rachel but
1: who yeah, knows? it could be. I just feel like with the with the list. She's smoking. Like, like, she's smoking, yeah, so I feel like yeah. that's pretty yeah. apparently, Rachel. Uh did you yeah. notice the um, wraparound snake tattoo that one of the replicants has when they get attacked? When uh, Yeah, yeah. That was cool. Which that's I mentioned cool. i mentioned this before in passing in the show, but every time I watch uh Westworld, which I know you've only I think maybe you've only seen the first season once, but I've seen it three times, so I, I noticed mm-hmm. a lot of detail. And, um, armistice and that has a huge snake tattoo that runs yeah, like, right. all around her body. And I'm just like, Oh my God. I mean, it, it's funny that it's like, no one ever can have a snake tattoo now if they're a woman and not bring you back to Sora and Joanna <laughs> Cassidy and all that. But that's just saying, you know, they did it first. That's,
0: that's what, that's what happens when you're iconic, you know? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, that was issue one. And then issue two, I love how when she's going in and talking, she's with the uh, sort of geriatric um, replicant. She doesn't know yet, but, you know, she's having a conversation. And she says uh, something like, not all of us worship at the altar of Voight and Kampf. Um, Yeah. Which is interesting for two reasons. I think obviously it, it brings in that detail that we all know about, but it's the first time I've seen the names Voight and Comp separated as opposed to right, the dash. Two people, which right. makes me think that it's two inventors, right? Which we've never yeah. seen that before. Before the Voight Comp is just like you just assumed it was a hyphenated last name. So again, and she has of, a
0: great point about it too, right? She says putting all your faith in a machine to better the better to catch machines, right?
1: Yeah, 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 totally. Um, yeah, the concept of him being aged up was totally interesting and cool it, usually replicates are trying to do the opposite they're trying to stay younger um, right. somebody mentions the andestine beaches I was like I don't even I don't think that's a real thing I don't know where that mm. is but that's cool just another proper noun that's kind of made up for the show um, Isabel is specifically this issue three now Isabel specifically mentioned as a Nexus Seven which is a cool touch because, again, we're sort of going back prior to 2049 and using Nexus 7 as an actual designator, which was never done uh, at the time of the first film. Um, Oh, man, when she's at the Tyrell Corporation and they're trying to get her to continue to work after she's been fired, essentially, um, the woman at the desk says, we make lives here. You can choose whatever life you wish. When she's talking about, you know, getting rid of her, her back implants and all, which I know we'll circle back to and talk about. Um, she finds that old drawing art from a from a replicant from the old skin job, which I thought was cool, kind of a parallel to Leon's um, photos.
0: Yeah, that was that was the same the same uh, Bellingham, right? The guy with the who was aged up, right? Yes, yeah, 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 the,
1: right. the, uh, the, the Jerry. Um, and then lastly, the, the combat scene. I know some of these things we'll circle back to and talk a little bit more about. But the combat scene where the um, the ship shows up, which looks a lot like one of the trash ships from 2049. It does from 2049. Right? Isn't that yeah. cool? Um, and then they show up and, you know, special forces start repelling out of there. And somebody asks Tyrell. And she says, no, the father, which was just kind of funny to see. The father and Tyrell sort of in the same paragraph, even though they're not talking <laughs> about Tyrell because there's such a big parallel there. So anyways. Right. Oh, and then and then the, um, the word urchin. She says she was urchin born and she's kicking the urchins off her car. That's another cool new term that's never been used, but you could totally apply it to the little German uh, little people that are on Deckard's car, you know
0: yeah and, and i know people in the fan community i've heard um you know call those urchins as well like that, that i always thought of them as like street urchins too so i think that's mm. like uh, it, it could even be just because that's become a kind of an informal moniker for that class of people of kids you know I wonder where that comes but yeah from. that was that stuck out to me too
1: cool um yeah anyways i just wanted to throw those out there so i didn't forget to talk about them but what are what are some of your favorite scenes or favorite moments the, in, the, in the story yeah
0: i i know those are all great I, and it's funny that every one of the ones that you brought up um i Remembered, so I think that it's it's amazing how like even though there's quite a lot of material already, it's so it's very memorable. You know, a lot happens, but it sticks out, uh, and I think it's because of the themes that that anchor it. And w- what I think, what I was alluding to earlier, is that by having Michael Green uh, helm this, we are getting a continuity of voice. And some of the things that work great about twenty forty nine as a sequel are what work great about this as an ancillary product. And specifically, it's about thematic unity. And if you can drill down on themes that are present in the source material and take them deeper and go further into them, you can take it in interesting directions in addition to that, but it will still work as a product set in that universe. So in 2049, you know, we talk a lot about how even though the story is new and even though it's, you know, building on things we haven't seen before, there's these same issues at the heart of it about identity and about memory and things like that, right? Like there are are these very specific philosophical ties between the two movies. And likewise, in the comics... That is even more present. I mean, this idea of the body, that's something that I think is really powerful. Um, You know, in 2049, of course, you know, we talk about how uh, Staline, you know, would have been torn apart and and used as a test subject because she was miraculous, right? And likewise, in this one, Cleo would have been taken apart because of that unique genetic quality that she had of longevity. Uh, That idea of the body being something tangible and something real of material significance is important in a lot of thematic ways, I think one of them in this is Ash talking about the city being a body, right? She says that she knows the body well enough to know where to cut it. That was something that her grandmother had taught her. Right. Um, and likewise, this underground railroad, these characters who are so memorable, even though we barely get to interact with them of the skin, the heart, the lungs, etc. cetera. Um, not only are they named after body parts that are functionally appropriate to where they are along the journey of this railroad, but they're also um, ex Tyrell engineers who were, Really gifted at building those specific structures, right? So these right. are the people who built these replicants. Had some kind of a moral awakening, or some sort of a, of some sort of a, a rebirth, and realized that they needed to change what they were doing to atone for what they had done, right? Oh, right, because like I the, forgot. The lungs says that, and most right? of them are not replicants. There's only. They're not, no, they're not. No, yeah. no, they're engineers. Yeah, um, and they're but they're in hiding among replicants to help to get get them out to El Santuario, which is that sanctuary in the Baja. Um, So there's this idea of physicality, and of the real, and of what we can touch. And then there's this other thing that goes all throughout Blade Runner, especially with Rachel as the perfect example of this, but also we see it in 2049, and again in the comics, of um, memory, and how memory informs our self-identity. So, an interesting flip side to this vis-a-vis 2019, the film, is that, you know, when Rachel finds out that her memories are implanted, it's a there's a wilting of identity that happens, right? She realizes that she's not who she thought she was. Something that I found actually extremely powerful in this, and something that I can relate to quite a bit, personally, is that when Isabel finds out that she's not who she thought she was, uh, she realizes that it doesn't matter because who she thought she was is who she is. That it's almost like Cogito Ergo Sum, right? That, like... It do- almost doesn't matter what's truly real as long as it's real within the subjective nature of my of my mind and my self identity, and that's a really really powerful idea. I think um, when uh, I think the best writing in the entire thing, and what I'll just I'll read it. Whatever people listening to this have already read the fucking comics, so I can, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil anything. <laughs> the be- the best writing in the whole thing, and it's some of the best writing I've read in any comic this year, uh, is the final like eight pages of issue four, where. You have this amazing climactic, very cinematic scene going on, right, which you had brought up earlier, where you have these special ops guys dropping out of these <laughs> trash chutes. That you know, the the um, it looks a lot like the garbage uh, shuttles and at the uh, what's it called the the trash mesa, right in twenty forty nine anyway but they're all dropping out of it you have Selwyn mm-hmm. coming there screaming mm-hmm. give me my daughter you have these you know replicant uh, pacifists who are just trying to escape of course it's raining so like by this point it's mirroring the same thing because the most striking thing about El Santuario, of course is that when you get there you see that it's sunny that there's no because there's no infrastructure there's no pollution there's nothing it's just this this island paradise right um, and it's shocking and then of course when, when the real world intrudes back into it, it starts to you know, rain the real world being the, being the physical you know the, the, uh, the world of capitalism in the world of control yeah it starts raining so you have all that going on you have detective ashina caught at this crossroads because she is just getting the real um awareness of what's actually happening i think like she's kind of figuring it out as she's standing there and seeing what's going on um and in the midst of that you have isabel making this really beautiful transition where she also now is finding out the the reality behind i don't know if she already knew did she already know that she was a replicant
1: um by this point yeah i'm trying to remember if the comic points out that moment but i don't think they ever do
0: maybe not but no. but i'm so assuming that this knew. is yeah she probably found out recently and that probably led mm-hmm. oh that that's probably what kind of led to her leaving that that is probably that she started digging and finding out more because right. there's this whole other identity thing that i'll get to in one second but i'll shut up for i want to go back to what i was talking about at the end so you have this amazing climactic scene happening and then you have in the midst of all of this Basically, silence, and you have Isabel reflecting on her life. So you have this combat happening, and then you have her saying, she's three weeks old, and the top of her head smells like heaven's clouds. Gunfire. People screaming. Eleven months since she touches my nose and says, dog. You have a neck breaking. You have machine gun fire. People screaming to get to the boat. Her first steps are on grass at the botanical gardens. Alexandra Selman screaming, people pummeling each other with spears, people jumping out of trees. Her favorite socks have watermelons on them. You have this incredible juxtaposition. Then the next time I turn the page, somebody gets shot in the head. The beats of my heart. The essence of me. A mother. And none of it real. All of it implanted in my fabricated mind. But real enough to me. And this one. Here to dispatch my kind. No, she didn't come for me. She came for Cleo. She doesn't see it yet. But I see it. Inside her. Her heart beating. Fucking amazing writing. I love that. And in that moment of transference, when all of this activity is going on, you have this tiny little monologue about the nature of memory and the and the construction of self. And I think that it's, uh, and maybe part of this is just the parent in me, but I, I I can't read that without crying. I find it incredibly powerful. No, I love you it. These moments, it's one of my
1: favorite pieces for sure.
0: These moments where you, you realize the immensity of the responsibility of bringing children into the world and helping them survive and you realize the incredible gift that that is and the burden of that and the real honest work that it takes and in that moment as she's remembering these things and as she's saying she realizes that they're fake and she doesn't care because they're real enough for her she's also abandoning her child willfully knowing that she's going to have to stay behind to draw gunfire she's going to have to wait there and be shot so that they can escape and so that this detective who's no longer a detective of course but who you know five pages earlier was ready to kill her can save her child. Um, And the last thing I'll say about that, about why it's powerful thematically for me, is that, of course, Detective Ashina was abandoned as a child by her mother, right? And that's something that, uh, as it's happening, you know, when you because, you know, she had this this spinal issue, and her mom said, you know, that she would be back, and she never did come back. She went off world. Uh, And it was this kind of specter looming over her early life um, that led her to question a lot of things about herself. And probably informed a lot of the the development that she had as a as an adult. Um, you have this beautiful circularity where it comes back around again, and she becomes a stabilizing force in another little girl's life that she never got a chance to have. Um, I just think it's just a, a, it's just amazing, just the way that that works out narratively and emotionally, and it has a real deep emotional impact for me.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I think that. Like I have mentioned once before, this scene in particular um, really takes the advantages of the graphic art form and uses them to its full potential. Um, by mixing, it, only in a comic book really can you mix action and intensity but make it in the background sort of and then bring her inner monologue to the foreground and still have dialogue i mean there's a way to do that in film as well but it it just turns out differently and i love that and again blade runner is the whole world is something that whether it has an inner dialogue or not meaning depending on which version of the original film you're watching whether it has deckard's monologue or not um and uh, we don't ever get any instant of Kay having any inner monologue, right? In
0: 2049? No. If, if he has any
1: thoughts, he says them out loud. He
0: says it, yeah, to joy. Or right, like, right. Like Very rare.
1: Out. I mean, he doesn't talk a lot, but he has no inner inner monologue. And, you know, in a film, you kind of need that. Again, people have different opinions about this, but, like, famously, the scene where he's in the, uh, the derelict ship, Sorry, derelict like, doesn't – a good word in this context. Um, but – and he recognizes it from his memory and it's that long sequence that leads to him finding the horse in the furnace. And again, it's like everybody knows what's about to happen. Everybody knows what he's about to see. But they're able to play that out atmospherically and just to let you breathe and let you think about the character. Um, it's interesting how a comic can do the same thing with a bunch of words. You know, like I don't feel – like I don't have space and I don't feel overwhelmed in those few panels. I'm just able to, and you know, you can focus on different things each time you read it, but it's wonderful to be able to watch the action in the background and put yourself in her shoes because it's her in her monologue. And I love the, that they sort of drop you into her thoughts where when you read the first sentences that you read, the first time you read it, you're like, what the hell is she talking about, right? And then it takes a second and you're like, oh, she's talking about the memories of watching this child grow up as a baby um you know most likely because she knows she's gonna die soon and so she's having those thoughts because that's what she wants to remember in her final moments um and that's just beautiful and poetic and i love the way they handled that in the comic. so yeah that's definitely the the conclusion is my favorite scene in the whole thing it's really beautiful
0: yeah and i think i think part of why artistically it works so well is because it's essentially a series of photographs right like a, a Part of part of the enduring appeal of comic books as an art form is because it's basically photos with words accompanying them. It's 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 moments frozen in time that to perceive as a consistent, cohesive story, your imagination has to pull into some sort of a, you have to allow it to become more than just a series of still images, right? So I think the act of doing that encourages a really subjective reading of the material in the same way that when you have a relationship with a novel, it's really deep. I mean, like if you're reading a large book and it takes weeks and weeks to get through, um, you're, you don't really have very much to go on outside of your own experience. And so you start injecting yourself into it a lot to understand what you're reading and to visualize it. Likewise, with a comic book, uh, you, you're, you're creating a world for this to be unfolding within, you know, you're given a lot of cues to what it is, but at the end of the day, you're telling yourself the story as you read it. Uh, and that is, I think a really powerful thing because depending on where you are in your life and who you think you are and where you are with other things, like it'll have a very different um, impact on you. Right. I just think it's just absolutely masterfully done. I can't wait to see where it goes from here. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that I necessarily wanted to touch on that we haven't yet. Other than, uh, I really hope that people who are reading it, like that we can connect more regularly on this material because I'm, I'm just really enjoying it a lot and we're not going to be able to have, you know, full episodes all the time um diving into this, but hopefully at least every time there's a smaller arc that concludes, we can check in. Yeah. We'll um, do this. I think we'll do
1: it. this at, at a minimum for sure.
0: Um, because there's, there's a lot to come and, uh, and if it's anything like what we've had, it's just a, it's just, we're up for such a great, such a great ride. And I, I'm, I'm not, I'm always, um, you know, astounded at how these things, you know, like we find out something's in pre-production or we find out somebody's getting a green lit to make something, you know, and then, months go by where we're wondering like, what's it going to be like, you know, like what's, what are they doing when they're working on it? Like, where are they? Uh, And then all of a sudden it comes out and it's this fully formed thing in the world that like, we will never forget about, you know? Oh, I remember what I was going to say. I had one more final thing. I think part of why the, um, that final, those final pages really uh, appeal to me um, is because I think that's why I defend joy and Kay's relationship so much when we have arguments about it on the show, because regardless of whether or not it's real or programmed, uh, or whether or not there, there's any volition going on, it's real enough for them. And that, I think, is what is important. And that's why I think uh, the the ending of this book really resonates with me a lot. You know, in a world where things are uh, dark and, and you have very little agency and very little control over anything, you have that little bit of control right at the end. And this is something that we've brought up on the show many times, right? How a lot of the time the only recourse left to, to you know, like with Batty, for example... In his death, he chose to take agency and have control. Um, you know, and in and, and some small way, he succeeded because he basically awakened Deckard and brought life into the world in that way. Um, and I think likewise in this, we see um, this replicant, woman who had no idea she was one until recently and it's not even that she's a replicant she's she's essentially a clone it's like you know it's like you know when, when when wealthy people have their pets cloned and then the 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 clone grows up and it's a totally different temperament from the other one and they're and you know they're really upset about it i mean this is like it's the same thing it, it, this is a simulacra right a simulacrum rather um it's not really alexander's wife and he must know that on some level and cleo must know that on some level and the replicant must also know it on some level until she finds out for real But the reality is is that she functioned as a fully formed person while she had time. And then in the act of dying, she took agency. She said, I have a choice to make here. My life has meaning, and I am giving it meaning in this moment. And in giving it meaning, I'm basically dying. But sometimes that's all you really can do. It's like sometimes that's the final, your final act is your bravest one of all. And uh, I think it really just resonates.
1: Yeah, it's a very Roy Batty kind of moment. Even though, you know, he was kind of going to die no matter what, whereas she had a choice, but um, really beautiful. Yeah, I I, I love the way they're able to really pull from our own memory, use the character's memory and create something completely new. Um, I really got to commend them on their work. And I'm super excited to see where this comic series goes from here.
0: Totally. As we close out, one final reminder, November 13th, we have our long awaited, long teased event. There are still tickets available to it. And we really would love to see you there. Like for, for real, there is so much going on. We are so excited. We have great plans for it. It's becoming a, uh, a huge thing. Uh, for us and for, you know, I think for Blade Runner fandom, there have been some um, modifications and cancellations of other events lately. This one's not going anywhere, so you're safe buying a ticket. You should s- still come to it. Yeah, we're um, 100% and- doing
1: this. We're not going to cancel it. You know, we had uh, Replicon is pretty much not happening, and um, the side Festival got cut down from four days to one. Not that anyone's going to change their mind about flying to England, but if you're in L.A. looking for something Blade Runner related to do, um, again, our special guests, um, Paul Salmon and Joanna Cassidy and Charles Della will be there. We'll have a QA, and a You'll be able to meet them and shake hands and talk. They're all great people. We've met with them several times. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited to see all you guys there. We're going to um, record the event. So for those of you who miss it, we'll put it out as a podcast episode later. But um, yeah, tickets are 50 bucks. Go get your tickets. We are uh, looking forward to seeing all you guys there and hanging out. And uh, hopefully um, those of you who can make it to uh, Neotropolis, the um, bar experience that's going on the whole month of November. Um, If you uh, buy one of our tickets, you'll get a 10% discount to that event. Um, I'm sending out emails about that. So yeah, hope to see all you guys there.
0: It's going to be amazing and we can hang out in the place where it happened the month that it happened and be together as a fandom and come together for this wonderful event and hang out late and and have a great time. So if you can make it and if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, I really want to say just come like you're not going to regret it. This is something that is literally once in a lifetime. This is not going to happen again, especially in this month and in this time in this place. This is a unique thing that you're not going to want to forget about. So don't, you know, uh, say there will be another chance because this could be it. So come to it. We would love to party with you. Um, you can hang out with people who have firsthand experience with the movie, who were there on the set, people who have written about it, um, and be surrounded by fans who love it just as much as you do and totally get it. So bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash event, or you can go right to Eventbrite, type in Los Angeles, November 2019, and event, or you can just send us a message about it. There are many people coming, but there are many seats available, and we would love to see you there. So sign up.
1: All right, you guys. Well... Thanks for uh, being here to hang out with us, and we will continue with the comic series once uh, a few more issues of the new arc have come out. We'll talk to you guys soon.
0: To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.